Well, good morning again, and uh, we are starting a new sermon series. As always, the, the little graphics on most of the graphics that I choose are uh, non-readable, you know, out there. Um, of course, I have this one right here, so it's like, you know, sitting at my desk. Uh, so hopefully you can read the Roman numerals. Those are seven. No, this isn't a series on the seven deadly sins. Um, but what that little print says in the middle, it says a study in the book of revelation. Now, some of you are going to get real excited at me saying the word revelation because you're thinking we are going to spend weeks and weeks and weeks talk. No, sorry. That's exactly what we are not doing. We, we, uh, we are not going to talk about that. And uh, I, I'm, I'm picking the low-hanging fruit, if you will. Um, we are going to be in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Uh, 7 is because the Lord Jesus, in the first part of Revelation, uh, has seven things he wants to say, seven letters to seven churches uh, in uh, Asia Minor of the time, the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation. And, and so Revelation 2 and 3 uh, is, is, as I say, the easy part of the book of Revelation. It's the low-hanging fruit. Uh, someday, maybe, we will deal with all that other stuff after chapter 5, all the other sevens, the bowls and trumpets and, you know, all that fun stuff. Yes, yes, but not, not in this series. So if you were excited, I'm sorry to disappoint you. Uh, we, will, we will not do that in this series. But as I said, we are in chapters 2 and 3, and we find seven real churches from Asia Minor at the time, near the end of the first century. And, and yet these seven real churches from back then are seven representative churches for us and for our day. The problems that they faced are the problems that we face. The same issues found in the ancient churches are the ones we find in contemporary churches. You see, not, not just Revelation 2 and 3, friends, but this whole book is relevant. God, God's word is relevant. God knows what we need to hear. So even though this book was not written to us, I've said that before, hear that. This was not written to us. It was written to specific people and, and places um, at a specific point in time. It is and was written for us. So there's application to us and we need to hear things and know who God is, what he's done, what he's going to do, all of that. And the book of Revelation and in this series, in this context, chapters two and three, we find these seven real churches with seven different uh, struggles and weaknesses and strengths and good things. And, and we will see that there's relevance to us as well. We're going to spend, uh, Lord willing, the plan is over the next six weeks, starting with today, uh, looking at one church per Sunday. And this will kind of launch us then into summer. And uh, um, again, the plan, the schedule right now is the, the very last one, the last letter to the church at Laodicea. You've heard that name maybe if you've, if you've studied this or have grown up in the church. Uh, our friend Adam Wilson will be here to, to preach that one to finish out the series, but that's, that's still weeks out. But that is, is where we go as we wind down spring and, and head our way into summer. Now, before we get into the first letter to the first church, which is the church at Ephesus, uh, let's talk about the structure to these letters, um, to these churches. Uh, scholars, and I've got like four footnotes here in my notes, and that's just four, but, but scholars agree there is a symmetry and a structure 
to every um, letter that, that Jesus speaks to. Okay, we're going to see he, he has something to say to seven different churches, and there's, there's differences, but the structure is generally speaking uh, the same. So I have a chart. You can kind of take a look at this, and, and really, generally speaking, this is true for all of the seven. First, there's going to be um, a command for there to be something written to a specific church. So all seven are, are named uh, Ephesus and Philadelphia, Sardis and Smyrna and these seven different places. So there's a command for John the apostle to write what he's seeing and hearing from the Lord Jesus. Uh, we'll talk about that more in a moment uh, to each of these seven churches. Then there's a self-description of Jesus himself that mirrors something in chapter one. So we're not going back in chapter one today. Maybe you had a chance to read it this week, uh, looking forward to today. But in chapter one, there's this vision of Jesus and and everything Jesus says to John in chapter one, he's gonna pull parts of those self-descriptions and use those in each address to each of the different churches. And it must be that something about who Jesus described himself to be is then relevant for that church. And we'll see that today as we work our way through it. Um, all the, this next thing in the structure is there's a, there's a commendation or an approval. Jesus commends the churches. Uh, not all seven uh, you see on the screen, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, and Philadelphia. Um, they get a commendation. They, they get something that's along the lines of, I know, I know this and that, but here's, here's some things you're doing well, okay? Then the, the next struct, point in the structure is there, there's a rebuke or, or an accusation. Um, and as you see on the screen, five churches not only, um, well, five have, have this, this sort of rebuke. Then and it's Ephesus, Pergamum, Thyatira, those, those ones, and Sardis and Laodicea, they have a rebuke. They have, they have something that Jesus says, I have this against you. Uh, let me jump ahead just for a second because uh, it's worth pointing out. Uh, so two of the seven don't have anything bad by Jesus explicitly. Smyrna and Philadelphia, they, they are only um, commended. And then there's two that essentially don't have a commendation, but they have this rebuke, Sardis and Laodicea. And then the other three, Ephesus, Pergamum, Thyatira, they, they have both uh, within this structure. There's then uh, a call by Jesus, an exhortation to repent, uh, to persevere. Therefore, strengthen, do this. You have this weakness, adjust this. So there's this, this call to respond. Um, I, what, what you have is six. I actually, as I realized after I put this chart together earlier in the week and I was seeing the same structure line up, uh, there's one other thing that I didn't put in the chart, so it should be number six. Um, it, it's a statement of what Jesus will do. Uh, you could call it like a consequence if they disobey. Um, sometimes it's an encouragement to press on. Sometimes it's a warning of judgment if they don't, but that is there as well. Um, not just a call for them to repent, but then what Jesus is going to do if, if they don't hear this, this word from him. Then what I have is six, uh, as the next item, there's an invitation. There's this invitation. All of um, the churches get this invitation um, that, that goes along the lines of, he who has ears, 
Let him hear what the Spirit says to the church is. And that's really important because like we're going to see in a moment, uh, Jesus is going to address the the church at Ephesus. So that that was a city, the church was there. But then at the end of it, there's this invitation, let everyone who has ears hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So here we are in Santa Rosa some 2,000 years later, and we need to hear what the Spirit said to the church at Ephesus, what he'll say to the church at Philadelphia, and so on. And then the last item that's there is this, this promise to, to victors, to those who conquer or overcome. And, and that's, that's put there in, in all of them, and we'll look at it again today. But you already know that word. If you have ever owned a pair of shoes with a swoosh, the, the word Nike comes from the Greek word nikao, uh, and it means victory. It means to conquer, to overcome. One pastor joked that each letter uh, that was written to these churches was sealed with a swish as they went out. Not quite, uh, probably not quite like that, but, but that's what that means. So when you put on your Nikes or if you see Nikes, just think to overcome, to be a victor, to conquer, that word means those things, and we're going to see that word again and again and again. There's a call to persevere, to overcome, to be victorious in what the Spirit is saying, what Jesus is saying to the churches. So again, scholars note that the seven letters conform to this pattern within the pattern. There are some differences, some that only have commendations, some that only have a rebuke, some that have all of it. There's different struggles, different victories and strengths, all of that. But as we're going to see, here's kind of an overview, as one writer put it, Ephesus, that's where we will be today. Ephesus is theologically and morally sound, but they're deficient in love. Smyrna, we'll note, is vibrant, but they're fearful. Pergamum is a witnessing, is witnessing, but undiscerning. Thyatira is loving, but over-tolerant. Sardis, impressive on the outside, but dead on the inside. Philadelphia, struggling, but strong. Laodicea, affluent, and yet apathetic. So as you hear that, again, he or she who has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. God gave us in the revelation, in the apocalypse, in this vision of Jesus and what would come, these these seven specific churches that function as representative churches so that we would hear some things, so that we might be able to go, Jesus, what what are you saying to us today in in this letter? Where do we need to repent like that church? Where where might you be commending us like that church? And and so, um, again, these are universal in, in the application, the struggles. Even if those were specific things then, we can see the relevance in our day, the very same issues that our church has, that the church around the corner has, that the church across the country has, and so on. Here's the truth, though, going in, and we'll see this explicitly in, in our passage today. The Lord Jesus knows all seven of these churches. He knows all seven. He knows them all. And it's not just a knowledge about, but he's intimately 
concerned. And he knows us too. He knows our church. He knows who we are. Uh, Santa Rosa, so that would make up all the local churches of our area, of our region, right? But, but Soma, who we are, he knows us. He knows us and he loves us. He's our redeemer, like we just sang. And he, he wants to, as we looked at last week, continue to sanctify us completely. And he is faithful. He will, he will do it. All of the churches will see have that statement at the end, this, this promise to those who are victorious, who overcome. And these were churches living at a time um, of, of hostility. It, it was very pagan, and nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. We live in a time as well where um, increasingly um, we suffer, and, and to, to be a person of faith um, we are met with hostile rejection, and, and so we too are called to, to endure, to overcome, to be faithful. If you haven't already, please turn to Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, and we are going to look at the letter to the church in Ephesus. Uh, I love this title, not because I came up with it, I, I didn't, I'm borrowing from uh, the great pastor, uh, preacher, sermonator, Chuck Swindoll. And, and he called this letter, or this church rather, the church with everything, but with the great, with, um, with the church with everything, but I didn't type that right, so now it's messing me up, but lacking the greatest thing. So there, I just, that, that fell short. The church with everything, but lacking the greatest thing. Um, So to put it this way, C.S. Lewis famously talked about when we put second things first, we miss out on both first and second things. What we are to do is put first things first, and this can apply to so many areas of our life. When first things are kept first, then we gain first and second things, but we so often put second things first, and then that causes us to miss out. In this church, they had a lot of things right. But the greatest thing they lacked, and we'll see what that is. So Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. Follow as I read. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise 
of God. This is the word of the Lord. To the angel of the church in Ephesus. As you're going to hear uh, each of these letters, uh, next time the plan is to look at uh, Smyrna. And so verse 8 says, to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Then in verse 12, to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Verse 18, to the angel of the church in Thyatira, and and so on. So each of these letters is written to the angel of. Uh, So scholars have written for ever about, well, who is the, the angel? Is it in fact an angelic being? Is there an angel over cities, churches, locales? Um, you may recall that word angel. It's one of those Greek words that's important to know. Um, that word angel is just a transliteration. We seem to talk about words and how they're just transliterations all the time. Like, like baptize, right, is transliteration of Greek uh, for baptizo, which means to immerse. So angel is a transliteration of angelos, which is a word that means to be a messenger. So angels, like we think of uh, throughout the Bible, are in fact messengers from God. And, and that's, that's good to know. Sometimes um, the word angelos is used, and it's not referring to what we think of as angels, but someone who's a messenger. And so some scholars have said, well, no, 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 this isn't written to angels over churches, like there's not the angel over all these, you know, cities and churches, but, but it's the senior pastor person, the, the head, a messenger of, of a church. And at the time, God, Jesus wanted to make sure that that head leader, that head elder, you know, knew something. And that may be the case as well. Um, it's really is like a coin toss. Uh, it, there's some val- validity to that. And yet every time John uh, uses the word Angelos, he seems everywhere else, he seems to be referring to divine angelic beings. So, you know, why would he change it just in one instance? But all that to say, we can just think to the church, forgetting the identity at the moment, it's not super important uh, who the angel of each of these churches is. It's a letter to this church. This is a letter to Ephesus, the church in Ephesus. And Ephesus was a very important city in its day. Um, Some estimate it was the third largest city. Um, Some 250,000 people were estimated to have lived in Ephesus, which was very large in in that day. It's in in the west coast of the province of Asia. Um, uh, The city was very enthusiastic about its worship of the emperor, uh, so they, they were into what's called the imperial cult, right? If you worship the emperor, you have this imperial, imperial cultic worship. So that was a big deal uh, in their day. Uh, there was a temple for Julius Caesar. Um, there was a temple for the emperor uh, Domitian uh, a little bit later on, and that may even have been built before John wrote Revelation. So that may be in play as well, um, The Christian faith came to Ephesus probably through Aquila and Priscilla, this husband and wife um, that we find in Acts 18. Uh, The Apostle Paul left them there on uh, his route, uh, on his travels, heading from Corinth to Antioch. On his next missionary journey, he would remain there for more than two years. This is Acts 19, And, and that's fascinating. Paul spent the longest time in Ephesus. He spent time at all these cities that he went to and all these churches he planted. He spent a lot of time, over two years, in Ephesus. 
He would eventually leave Timothy, one of his closest companions there, to be his representative. Timothy would be there, and, and Paul would write a letter, Ephesus, or Ephesians, that is, to the church at Ephesus. He would write two letters to Timothy, uh, who was there uh, at Ephesus. Church history tells us that the apostle John was very closely associated with the city of Ephesus as well. So there, there's a lot of influence that the city has had to the Christian faith and who was there and who was left there and, and these letters that were written. But in its day, the city was most famous for being uh, a temple keeper um, for the, the goddess Artemis. And so the temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Um, thousands would journey to Ephesus for uh, their version of a pagan uh, pilgrimage to this, this, this site um, there in Ephesus uh, for the Ar- Artemisian festival and so on. Um, and, um, and, and so this city was famous. It had all of that. It was a port city, lots of stuff in and out. The Christian message had been there. And so verse one, chapter two, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among seven golden lampstands. So for a second, just look back at chapter one. We need to understand these ideas. So Revelation 1, we'll start at verse 12. This is John writing. Actually, let's back up to verse nine, sorry. So John writes, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. That's John in a very polite way saying, I was in prison for proclaiming Jesus. They sent me to this little island to to die and to be isolated Verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. And here they're listed, Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Then verse 12, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. Verse 16, in his right hand, he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. So we'll stop there in chapter one, but back in chapter two, verse one, this is what Jesus says. The words of him who holds the seven stars, that's what we just read from Revelation 1, 16, in his right hand, and who walks among seven golden lampstands. In verse 12, we read that as well. And what John is going to reveal to us at the end of one is that the lampstands, uh, well, we should just read it. It's worth hearing. 
So back in verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels, the messengers of the seven churches, and the lampstands are the seven churches. Okay, so there, there it is. So to Ephesus write the words of him who holds, who holds the seven stars, who's got in his hand these messengers and who walks among these golden lampstands. So right off the bat, as I said, each, each letter we will see when Jesus identifies himself after saying who to write to, he's gonna pick phrases from what we've just read from chapter one. And to Ephesus, he speaks of holding these stars in his right hand and walking among the lampstands. Um, we could just briefly summarize it like this. This is none other than a picture of Jesus as God and his omnipotence, his all power and his omnipresence. His, his, he's everywhere. He, he's got them in his hand and he's among them. God is omnipotent. He, he's omnipresent. He, he knows, as we said earlier, he knows this church. He's all-knowing, all-powerful, and he's omnipresent. Verses two and three and verse six, I'm gonna skip four and five for a minute. Verses two, three, and six are the, the commendation then, the next part of that structure. So hear these words. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Verse six, you have, yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So there you go. In those three verses, two and three and six, Jesus' commendation to this church in Ephesus. He commends them, he compliments them for, for toiling, working hard in, in good deeds. Uh, they, they work hard, he says, uh, I know these works, your toil, uh, the labor. Uh, he says that you have, you have this patient endurance in the midst of trials and you stand against false doctrine. He speaks of those who call themselves apostles but are not and are found to be false. And then in verse six, he speaks of Nicolaitans. We'll talk about that in a moment. So you could summarize it like this. Jesus commends them for toiling in good deeds Enduring patient and trials and standing against false doctrine. Good things, good things to be commended for. Would we be commended for those sorts of things in our day? As individuals, as a church, do we work hard in the things God has called us to do? Do, do we morally and spiritually reject evil things? Do we stand for, for spiritual and doctrinal purity and moral purity. That's the kind of thing that, that he is commending this church for. Now, in verse 6, he mentions, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We're going to come 
over the next couple of weeks and see this group again, uh, the Nicolaitans. We really don't know much uh, about them, uh, but it seems, as we'll learn uh, more later, that they were following Balaam, and specifically Balaam's error. Uh, Balaam was, of course, a prophet from the Old Testament that was hired by Balak to curse Israel, but he ended up blessing Israel instead. And then in the book of Numbers, we find Balaam eventually was the instrument of leading people into idolatry and and sexual sin. And and so the Nicolaitans somehow are associated with with this error. Uh, It seems they were like an anything goes type of of group. And what we're going to read over and over is that the false teaching that most tempted the people what was false teaching that, that said something along the lines of go and, and compromise and, and just kind of do whatever you want, whatever feels good, whether it's food sacrificed to idols, other kinds of compromise and idolatry, or compromise with sec- sexual immorality. I got to turn that off. More and more it happens. It doesn't really matter. Whatever goes, goes. Whatever you like, you can do. You can compromise in your worship, it's okay. You can compromise in sexuality, whatever, whatever. Very free these people were in how they lived. This was the error. And Jesus says to them, you, you hate their works, which I hate also. And you, you are working hard and you're standing against error. You don't tolerate those. It's interesting. <laughs> Again, this could be misstated, but... Um, Jesus commends them for uh, being intolerant and for hating. Two things we generally think we ought to not be known for. <laughs> okay, we got to make sure we don't tolerate the same things Jesus doesn't tolerate, and we got to make sure we, we hate the things Jesus hates. Okay, uh, of course, we can flip-flop that, and we do quite a bit. They had moral and ethical strength. They had theological strength. And again, I, I've said this already. If you just think about this church, they, they had this, this history, this, this ancestry of the Apostle Paul planting this church, of being there over two years, of, of Timothy being there, of, of these letters being written. I, I mean, they had a lot um, that, that goes with this, why they would be morally and, and spiritually and theologically strong. When Paul wrote to Timothy in his first letter, 1 Timothy 1.3, Paul said, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So Paul had said that to Timothy. And so Timothy charged the people and equipped the elders and the churches. They they stood against false teaching and and false moral, do whatever you want uh, kind kind of ideas. A few years after Revelation was written, the church father, Ignatius, he wrote to Ephesus and he praised them. This is just from church history, not the Bible, but he he praised uh, Ephesus because he heard a report that there was no heresy or, or false teaching that could even gain an audience in the Ephesian church. They, they were orthodox. They, they knew what they believed and they fought against anything false. And Jesus says, I commend you. I commend you for those things. Genuine praise for those things. And, and that should be true of us too. We should stand for the truth conveyed to us from God's word. Uh, the faith once for all given. 
sound teaching. We should, we should reject and not tolerate uh, moral licentiousness and, and any teaching that says, well, you can live any way you want. You've been forgiven or, you know, it doesn't matter. Some things are outdated. You know, we need to be progressive and on and on and on. No, we, we too should want to hear Jesus commend us for being theologically and doctrinally and morally pure, whole. And we, we would want that, I hope. I do. I want that personally. I want that for our church, that kind of genuine praise, that commendation. But Ephesus, as we'll see from four others, also receive a rebuke from Jesus. So verses four and five. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. We'll we'll come to verse five in a second. So this is where that title that Chuck Swindoll gave to this church, the church with everything, these great commendations, but without the greatest thing. The church with everything except the greatest thing. And that is the greatest thing was love, love. The one thing I have, you have abandoned the love you had at first. So what is John writing? What is Jesus saying? What, what, what love was it? Love for God? Did they abandon loving him? Was that the love they had at first? Was it, did they abandon the love for brothers and sisters, the, the horizontal love, right? The, the great commandment, love God, love neighbor. We don't know exactly. He, he does say in verse five now, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent, return. Repentance is just to turn back. We should be repenting every day. Hopefully you've heard me say it numerous times. The first of Martin Luther's famous 95 thesis has to do with the Christian life is Repentance. The Christian life is repentance, not the non-Christian life, although they need to repent too. But for those of us that have been redeemed, that have been saved, our day is to be one of repentance. And sometimes if you're like me, you got to repent 10 times in the first hour of your day because we sin in thought, in word, in deed. And so, so Jesus says, remember, remember from where you, you have fallen Repent and do the works you did at first. You've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember from where you fell, repent and do the works you did at first. Now, not works to get you saved. That's, that's not what John is writing. It's not what Jesus is saying because, of course, we don't do any works to get saved. Jesus did all the work. We believe on him and he saves us. And then come works. But, but at first, now, I don't know everyone's story in the room in terms of when you came to faith in the Lord Jesus, but if you were like me, if you came to know Jesus a little bit later in life, as in like you weren't a kid, remember our baptism a couple weeks ago, uh, we, we had some in the water that had been raised in a Christian home, and praise God for that, when, when, when there's people that have always known and have always known that God loves them and they've loved God. And, and there's not been this dramatic, oh, I went and lived way over here and did all these crazy bad things 
And, and that happens, and, and it's those of us that are like that, that we might remember, I, I remember coming to know the Lord Jesus. And I remember how he was the most important thing. I mean, it's all I could do was to pray. And all I could do uh, to read the Bible, all I could do was listen to Christian music. Um, You know, Laura, you talked about There is a Redeemer in the 90s. Try the 80s. That song was 1982. Uh, So, right? But so if you... So I remember those songs, Keith Green, who wrote that, or his wife wrote it, but Keith Green recorded it. And, and that would come later for me. But as a young Christian, just so caught up in the fact that God loved me, that he would die for me. And I loved Christian music. I loved getting tapes. Remember tapes, some of us, and pulling out the cassette and yeah. pulling out the liner notes and unfolding and reading the song lyrics. And for a lot of Christian music, there were verses at the top of where... Those, those lyrics came from, and I soaked that up. Um, one band was the band Petra, and they had a song called First Love. I've been listening to that all week. Anybody remember that song besides Paul? Some of you. I was joking with some in the room. I won't name them. Uh, there was this Christian heavy metal band that had a song called Seven, and uh, it gives me dumb chills. I, I re-listened to it, and it's not worth listening to. Um, <laughs> Some things are better left back in the past, but some things are worth listening to again and, and, and remembering. Um, yes, thank you. But I, but I remember, but I remember. I remember I loved going to church. I loved it. I loved being with other Christians and growing and learning. Uh, I loved talking about my faith. I thought I could do anything. These two people came to the door. I would find out they were Jehovah's Witnesses. I invited him in because surely as a young Christian, I could talk to them. I couldn't. Um, and so I asked him to come back in a week. I went to my youth pastor and said, help. And I got a few things. And when they came back, I tried to talk with them. Um, I loved, I loved God. I loved God's people. I remember. And, and then I got older. And so I can relate to this letter. I love theology, if you didn't know. Um, Man, I do. And I want to believe right things about God. I want to teach right things about God. And I want to stand against moral wrong in in the right way. And there's a, a loving way to do that for sure. Okay. We need to be full of grace and truth and we need to speak the truth and love. All of that, yes. But, but, but man, I hear this. I hear Jesus saying, Paul, you, you, you are prone to leave your first love. You can get caught up in knowing the right things, but you neglect me. Remember, Paul, what you had at first. Remember what that was like. And do those works. Seek me. So I don't know. That, that's my story. I don't know if you relate to that. In, in Ephesians 3, so again, years prior, the Apostle Paul, having planted the church there and then writing a letter to the church, offers this prayer in Ephesians 3. He says, I'm praying that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith and that you, being rooted and grounded in sound theology, is that what it says from memory? I expect you didn't turn there quick enough, but... 
No, it says you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That's what he had prayed for them. And so years later, Jesus says, he had neglected that love. Or, like Paul would write to another church, not Ephesus, but you know these verses. If you've ever been to a wedding, you've likely heard this. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I give my body over to be burned, to be martyred, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love, love. So probably, I think, Jesus is saying, the the love that you've abandoned, that you had at first, it was probably, first and foremost, yes, this this vertical love relationship with God, but it, it does affect how we love others. Loving people, probably both things. Of course, Jesus connected those things. The greatest commandment in Mark's account is love God, love neighbor. Two commandments that combined to be the great commandment. Or John would write something that we'll look at a little bit here in a moment about the connection between loving God and loving others. He says to them, remember, therefore, repent, and, and do those works you did at first. And then here's, here's this warning in the middle of verse five. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand. What, what was the lampstand? That was the church. That's a scary warning. You're, you're sound theologically. You're sound morally. You're, you're working hard, but you don't love. Deal with that, or I, I may take you out as a church. Now, churches close down all the time. I mean, just it's reality across the world and, you know, whatever. And it's not always for judgment, but, but maybe sometimes Jesus says, I'm this church, they don't love anymore. That's it. I'm, I'm removing their lampstand. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So there's, there's this warning Jesus' point to the church at Ephesus, you hate what I hate, that's good, but do you love what I love? And Soma, do we hate what he hates and love what he loves? Or, and, and that's good, but, but do we love what he loves? So I want to have us pray just for a moment. This is one of those moments when it's just good, like we should just pause. <laughs> it's okay, spirit, we're, we're supposed to have an ear to hear. The next verse is going to say that, what the Spirit says to the church is. So we're a church. We need to hear this. Um, and before we hear this promise about being conquerors and victors, uh, let, let's just pause. And so I want to invite us to just, to just repent. What, what is the Spirit saying to you first? And, and just quietly, you can play, pray out loud verbally, but, but just individually. So just whisper, kind of quiet. God, I'm sorry for... And maybe it's your lack of love. Maybe, it's, maybe you haven't been theologically sound and, and maybe there's some of that or, or morally. So just, God, I'm sorry 
for what you're saying. Help me. So just, just spend a few moments quietly. The Lord loves it when we repent. He does. He, his arms are open. Like most parents, when their kids have done something wrong and they are scared, but they turn and say, sorry, right? Our Heavenly Father loves it when we repent and we return. But I want us as a church to do that too. And, and so just simply, let's, let's say these words together in just a moment. God, please rekindle our love for you. Okay, we're, we're just going to say that together corporately as a church gathered. Because there's all this individual work, and that's good, because we are personally connected to God through the Lord Jesus. But that personal relationship is not private, right? We've been talking about that in our previous series, chapter two, right? We're part of a church. It's not private, uh, it's, pri- it's, it's personal, but, but we're connected. So we, we want to together have him rekindle. So we're going to say, God, rekindle our love for you. Let's say that together as a church. God, God rekindle our love for you. One more time. God, rekindle our love for you. John, who's on this island writing this, wrote a letter it's called First John in our Bible. And he said this in three verses, and I want to challenge you to memorize these. I'm, I'm going to take this challenge myself this week. First John chapter four, verses 19 to 21. We love because he first loved us. Repeat that with me. We love because he first loved us. There, you've got one verse memorized. That's verse 19. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Those be great verses to memorize this week. We love because he first loved us. Please stand. We're going to close our service with a song, a prayer, inviting Jesus to come. Of course, that's eventually what the book of Revelation gets to, that he's gloriously returning in bodily form, and it's really going to happen one day, and we long for that day because this life is hard and it's filled with trials and hurts and struggles and sin and pain and evil, all of it. And we're trying to be faithful and endure and conquer. And I should mention the way he ends this letter. He says in verse 7, To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. 
So this is Jesus promising those who are conquerors. And, and just again, you know, we, we will conquer because Jesus conquered. That's, that's where Revelation is going to go. The Redeemer has conquered and, and we are his by his conquering. And so we, we will, we will. And one day there's going to be this new Jerusalem and there's going to be the return of the tree of life. And, and one day, because Jesus conquered and we are in him, we will get to enjoy that. Um, but we're going to now pray, come Jesus, come, because we want that. And let's, let's sing that as our, as our prayer this morning. So Father in heaven, thank you for this letter. Thank you for the letters to the churches. And give us ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to seven specific places from long ago, but seven representative places. May we, may we respond. May we long to be like the things that they are commended for. May we long to repent of the things that they're called to repent of. And we thank you that you are our first love and that we, we can only love you and others because you, in fact, first loved us. So to that we give ourselves, even as we pray, come, Jesus, come. In Jesus' name, amen.